This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Your Radio Doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, products, physicians, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on Your Radio Doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Millions of Americans are losing their medical assistance or Medicaid coverage. If this affects you, Independence Blue Cross can help. You may be eligible to enroll in a health plan for as little as $0 a month. With Independence Blue Cross, you get the largest provider network in the area, including most Keystone First doctors and hospitals. We also offer free 24-7 telemedicine, coverage for hospital stays and prescriptions. See if you qualify for $0 health insurance and enroll today. Call Independence Blue Cross at 1-844-464-2583 or visit ibx.com slash stay covered. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. Always live on the free Odyssey app. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Saturday afternoon at 5. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, seven months or ten months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good morning and welcome to your radio doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. We just said goodbye to October, which is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, but this message is valuable all through the year. Our guest today, Dr. Monica Morrow, Chief of the Breast Surgical Service and Ann Burnett, Winford Chair of Clinical Oncology at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, as well as Professor of Surgery at Weill Cornell Medical College. Dr. Morrow previously served as Chair of Surgical Oncology here in Philadelphia at the Fox Chase Cancer Center. She's been the President of the Society of Surgical Oncology. She's an Honorary Fellow at the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons in Glasgow, as well as in Ireland. And she's had multiple national and international awards for her surgery, research, and she's a highly respected author and speaker. But maybe her most shining achievement is being a graduate of Jefferson Medical College. Go, Sister Jefferson Med College graduate. (laughs) Welcome, Monica. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you've saved thousands and thousands of lives and, and given people hope, Monica, and when a person is faced with the word cancer in the same sentence as their name, it's it can be overwhelming. So if, if a patient or, or a care healthcare provider finds a breast lump in a patient, or if a, if a patient notices dimpling of their skin or retraction of nipple, bloody discharge, all those things we warn people about, how do you make a diagnosis? Well, let me start by saying the first thing to do is to not panic because there are many, many benign breast lumps, that is non-cancerous lumps. Most nipple discharge is not related to breast cancer. It comes from, again, non-cancerous things. So the first thing that you need to do when you notice these symptoms is to see a medical provider and have a good physical examination. If that examination confirms that there's something that requires further evaluation, then the next step in evaluation 
usually is a mammogram. Sometimes in women who are under the age of 30, the first step is an ultrasound of the breast. But for most women, it'll be both a mammogram and an ultrasound. Those tests allow us to determine if a lump is present, and if it is, to characterize it as a solid lump, which will require further evaluation, or a fluid-filled cyst, which has nothing to do with cancer and doesn't require any treatment unless it's symptomatic. Once you've had those tests, if something that is suspicious, and remember, the definition of suspicious on a mammogram in the United States is anything that has greater than a 5% chance of being cancer. So a lot of these things that we biopsy are not cancer. The next step is to have a biopsy to get a piece of tissue to examine under the microscope because that's the only way you can make a diagnosis with 100% certainty. And for almost all the breast lumps that we see today, the best way to do that is by doing a needle biopsy, not by going to the operating room to cut the thing out as a first step, because that often leads to unnecessary surgery or in women with cancer, more than one surgery. So needle biopsies are a highly reliable test to identify cancer. And when the radiologist does that needle biopsy, they look at the results of the biopsy and see whether that result adequately explains what's on the x-ray. If it does not, we call that non-concordant, and that's a sign that something else needs to be done. But most of the time, the needle biopsy will answer the question and allow us to take the first steps in determining what appropriate cancer treatment mm -hmm. should be. And I wanted to ask who would coordinate that care, but... I think the other issue that I that went through my mind is if you feel a lump and the mammogram and ultrasound don't identify it, um, or we want people to not ignore a lump, how often would a mammogram be negative in that situation? So it's true that not all lumps show up on mammogram, and that's in part related to the density of the breast tissue, and it's also related to the characteristics of the lump. Having said that, a lot of things that women themselves perceive as lumps are not what medical providers would call lumps. They're lumpy breast tissue. Breasts in and of themselves are lumpy. They're not like a bag of jello. They're more like a bunch of marbles in a sock in many cases. And the upper outer part of the breast, which is where most of the glands are, tends to be the lumpiest part of the breast. So lumpiness that comes and goes with the menstrual cycle is virtually never anything to worry about. So again, having a provider confirm that there is a true lump there is important. If there is, the fact that a mammogram is normal should not stop evaluation of that lump. Now, with both mammogram and ultrasound, it is uncommon to see nothing on either of those tests and still have a worrisome or suspicious lump. But if there's any doubt, then either you can stick a needle in what you feel, and that's a way to establish the diagnosis, or you can consider other x-ray testing, but I have to say that getting advanced x-ray tests like MRI for a lump that doesn't show up on any other test is an uncommon situation. Good to know. So if somebody has lumpy breasts and you've made the diagnosis, it, that's not a reason to add the MRI to the evaluation either. No, lumpy breasts to feel are not associated with breast cancer risk. They may make you nervous, 
They may make your doctor nervous if they're not used to examining breasts, but they don't actually increase your risk of getting mm-hmm. breast cancer. So when a, when a person has a new diagnosis of breast cancer, because I'm saying person because men can get breast cancer too, although it's maybe 1%, um, they have the biopsy report. Where should the patient go first? Because we know, um, I guess, two questions. Uh, a, a new cancer is discussed by a tumor board in most cases that, that's multidisciplinary, meaning we, we want the input from a surgeon, uh, an oncologist, the person's primary care, all those people putting their, their brains uh, together for the best. We want to look at the whole chessboard. So would a patient seek the advice of an oncologist? Who should be the air traffic controller? The, an oncologist to say, let's go through the steps or go right to a surgeon? How would you recommend that people... So traditionally, breast cancer that's curable, which means breast cancer that's confined to the breast or the lymph nodes under the arm, has been approached with surgery first. And so the surgeon traditionally has been the first person to see a newly diagnosed cancer patient. In today's world, we've learned that certain specific kind of breast cancers actually benefit by giving drug therapy, chemotherapy in many cases first, to shrink the cancer or to allow less surgery to be done. And so that's a decision that needs to be made by, as you said, a multidisciplinary group of doctors that includes surgeons, medical oncologists, and radiation oncologists. But in general, it's always helpful for the surgeon who's going to operate on you to examine you first before anything else is done so they know what the characteristics of the tumor were. So I think you're safe to start with a surgeon. Many hospitals and practices have multidisciplinary breast groups where you can see multiple different physicians at the same time and accomplish that. So I think this can work in any number of ways. And many medical oncologists will see patients, and if they don't believe they're appropriate for drug therapy first, refer them on to a surgeon. That makes sense. And I guess it depends where you live, too, and and, uh, what resources there are in your area. Yeah, I think it really depends on what kind of clinical resources there are that are convenient to you. Mm Mm-hmm. But I'm sure that before you talk about, I mean, I know that before we talk about a plan for surgery, we first have to stage the cancer. With any cancer, we want to say, we want to have evidence to tell us it's localized or focal versus has it spread because that would pretend a different plan. So let's talk about, um, if you would, the, the meaning of the word staging and how that's achieved. So staging, as you said, defines the extent of the cancer. That is, is it confined to the breast? Does it involve the breast and the lymph nodes, or has it spread to other parts of the body outside the breast? And the initial staging in breast cancer is always clinical based on physical exams. So in today's world, we get a lot of patients calling us saying, can you do a telehealth with me? And the answer is no, we can't do a telehealth Breast is one of those things where a physical exam of your breast is critical to determining the best treatment for you. So you get a physical exam and you determine the clinical stage. And if the clinical stage is early, meaning there's no evidence of spread to the lymph nodes, then there's generally no reason to get x-ray tests to look for cancer in other parts of the body, things like PET scans, CT scans, because you will almost never find cancer, but what you will find is lots of things that have been in your body your whole life, and then you get to have more tests proving that they have nothing to do with cancer. So although patients 
often say, well, can't I just have a PET scan because it would make me feel less anxious? Tests don't solve problems unless they're done appropriately. They actually can make more problems. So we reserve those tests for women who have larger cancers in their breast, evidence of abnormal lymph nodes to feel in their armpit, or symptoms like unexplained weight loss, new pain in their bones, a cough, something that might suggest we need to look in other parts of the body. Mm -hmm. So then once you have the clinical stage, then the final stage always comes after surgery when we can examine the exact size of the cancer under the microscope. And when we know in more detail about the lymph nodes under the arm, then we can tell by feeling because surgery of breast cancer will involve removing some of those lymph nodes to accurately establish the stage. Mm -hmm. And I know, I'm sure most people understand that lymph nodes are a circuitry of drainage that go through the body and the lymph nodes under, under the arm or over your collarbone, even into your neck, can reflect activity of a breast cancer. But if we have about a minute and a half in this segment, Monica, let's talk about the sentinel node biopsy, because that has really revolutionized the approach, wouldn't you say? I mean, it started in the early 90s. Sure. So one of the things that's happened in breast cancer, remarkably, really, over the past 30 years, is that we have recognized that many of the treatments we do cause a lot of side effects and don't benefit a lot of women. So we have gradually been trying to apply the right amount of treatment for each individual patient. And where we really see that change is in the lymph nodes. It used to be that since the lymph nodes under the arm are the first place breast cancer cells tend to go when they leave the breast, and x-ray tests do not reliably tell us whether or not those lymph nodes are involved. So it used to be we took them all out so we could look at them all under the microscope, which was the operation called axillary dissection. And that was a very accurate way of knowing if the lymph nodes were involved, but unfortunately that operation has a fair number of side effects, most notably arm swelling or lymphedema. So happily, that has been replaced by an operation called sentinel lymph node biopsy, which is based on the idea that as cancer cells go from the breast to the lymph glands under the arm, there's a couple lymph glands they go to first, which we call the sentinel nodes. The way we find those sentinel nodes is the day before surgery, we put a low dose of radioactivity down into your breast that travels to the lymph nodes. And then when you're in the operating room, we put a blue dye into your breast that travels to the lymph nodes. And then we make a little incision or cut at the edge of where the hair grows in your armpit. And we go into your armpit and remove the nodes that are either blue or radioactive or feel abnormal. Those are the sentinel nodes. And what we have learned in many, many thousands of women now is that if there's no cancer in the sentinel nodes, there's no cancer in the other lymph nodes under the arm, and we don't need to take them out. So that saves lots of women the side effects of the bigger operation of removing all the lymph nodes, and that's how we stage the axillary lymph nodes today. What a nice, clear explanation for people to hear, Monica. Let's take a little break, and when we come back, more on making decisions about surgery for breast cancer with Dr. Monica Morrow. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. At Independence Blue Cross, we believe in giving you the tools you need to pursue your healthiest life. From premiums as low as $0 per month to health discounts and cash rewards, it pays to have coverage with Independence. 
with the strongest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free 24-7 virtual doctor visits, you can feel confident that quality care is always within reach. Learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com. When Recovery Centers of America at Devon opened its campuses on the main line and in South Jersey, they offered a new approach, local addiction treatment led by an expert caring team of professionals. RCA has since helped thousands and leads the way in innovative programs and exceptional inpatient and outpatient care, all in a beautiful setting that allows for healing and recovery. RCA answers the phone and admits patients 24-7, 365, including the holidays. All admitted patients and staff are routinely tested for COVID-19. Call now at 1-888-RECOVERY. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. Welcome back to your radio doctor. We're here with Dr. Monica Morrow, Chief of the Breast Surgical Service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Monica, we were talking about the initial approach. A patient comes with a new diagnosis of breast cancer and there are surgical options that can be offered. And we're trying to arrive at the best choice for each unique individual. Um, we're talking about the staging process and that is the best explanation I've ever heard of the sentinel node biopsy um, or how to get to the sentinel nodes. It's almost like um, Paul Revere coming to town. You know, they're the nodes that hear it first. They're the lymph nodes under the arm that are most likely to have cancer spread there first. And if they're positive and you are able to understand how many are affected, it might, it spares a woman from having all of the lymph nodes taken from under her arm that could leave her with a really big swollen arm, yes? Yes, so we think this has been a really great advance that has reduced the side effects of treatment and made life life better for many thousands of women at this point. Mm -hmm. And so along that, that menu of tasks we have to do to find how far the cancer has advanced, uh, most of the time it, it hasn't, um, but we need to do other tests to understand the best therapies. And you mentioned sometimes we want to start with chemotherapy before surgery, be it lumpectomy or mastectomy, because, and that's called neoadjuvant. Adjuvant means we're going to help with chemo. We're going to help uh, arrest your cancer with adjuvant therapy, and that's given after surgery. But before surgery, it's called neoadjuvant, yes? Yes, that, that's correct. And we, we understand when to use that, I guess, because we test the cancer itself. And let's talk about those tests that are done. So just along the lines of chemotherapy and just the general thought about breast cancer, um, there are usually several parts to breast cancer treatment for the vast majority of women. One part is to get rid of cancer in the area of the breast itself, which is what surgery and radiotherapy are about. And the other part is to reduce the risk that cancer will come back someplace else in your body, which requires a treatment that goes throughout your entire body, which is what drug therapy, chemotherapy, or anti-hormonal therapy, which is also called endocrine therapy, are about. So when we're thinking about what order we should give these treatments in, we get important information from that initial needle biopsy that makes the diagnosis of breast cancer. So people are often concerned about what kind of breast cancer do I have? And almost all breast cancer, 85%, is of the type called infiltrating ductal cancer. And the second most common type is called infiltrating lobular cancer. All that tells us is that the cancer started in your breast. It didn't come from any place else in your body. And that doesn't really determine how we treat. But what does are other tests we run on the cancer to look for 
first of all, hormone receptors, which are the estrogen receptor and the progesterone receptor, which are characteristics of many, but not all breast cancers. And the easiest way to think about what a hormone receptor does in breast cancer is it sits on the outside of the cell like a lock on your door. And when your body's own estrogen comes into that lock, it opens the door and it lets the cell grow. But by giving drugs that block the lock, which are endocrine therapy, it stops the cells from growing. And then there's another receptor type thing, which is called HER2, which many people have heard of, which makes some breast cancers grow. And HER2 positive, which means cancers that have the HER2, used to be very aggressive and bad breast cancers until drugs were developed that specifically blocked the effects of HER2. And that has dramatically changed the course of HER2 positive breast cancers from something bad to something that we can treat very, very successfully in the majority of cases. So your cancer could be hormone receptor positive and HER2 negative. It could be hormone receptor positive and HER2 positive, meaning we have two separate targets that we have drugs for. Or it could be what we call triple negative, which means it has no estrogen receptor, no progesterone receptor, and no HER2. And for those triple negative breast cancers, the treatments we have right now are primarily chemotherapy, although we have seen great success recently with immunotherapy in the treatment of triple negative breast cancers as well. So when we think about whether to do surgery first or whether to do drug therapy first, we again go back to stage. So for patients who have advanced breast cancer, which is usually clinical stage three breast cancer, they will get chemotherapy as a first step the vast majority of the time as long as they're healthy. Women who have stage one and two breast cancers have disease that we could operate on, but for triple negative cancers and HER2 positive cancers, we will sometimes give chemotherapy first. And the reasons we choose to do that are if there are lymph or if there are cancer cells in the lymph nodes under the arm that are big enough than you, that you can feel those lymph nodes on physical exam, if we do surgery first, then we have no choice but to take out all those lymph nodes, the axillary dissection operation. But by giving chemotherapy first, studies have shown us that we can kill all the cancer cells in those lymph nodes. And then we can do a sentinel node biopsy. And if all the cancer is dead, we don't have to take out the lymph nodes. So if you have cancer in your lymph nodes big enough to feel, usually chemotherapy is the first step. And the other time we use chemotherapy first for operable breast cancers is in women who have a cancer that's large in size relative to the size of their breast to shrink the cancer so that they could have a lumpectomy, removal of the cancer, rather than removal of their entire breast. Now, one of the things I've learned over time when I talk to women about getting neoadjuvant chemotherapy or chemotherapy is the first step is 
This makes a lot of people nervous because their next door neighbor had surgery first and they feel like they're going to be sitting there for a couple months just, quote, watching the cancer. But you're not watching the cancer at all. You're getting drug therapy that's killing cancer cells, not only in the breast and in the lymph nodes, but other cancer cells that might be elsewhere in your body. And we know this is a safe approach because at this point in time, there are clinical studies that have been done on many thousands of women around the world where they were randomly chosen to either have surgery first or get chemotherapy first. And the chance of surviving breast cancer was exactly the same between those two groups. So we know that that approach is safe, but more women in the chemotherapy first group had smaller surgery in both their breast and in the lymph nodes under their arm. And in today's world, there's yet another advantage for getting the chemotherapy first for women with HER2 positive and triple negative cancers, which is if all the cancer doesn't die in response to that chemotherapy, then we know we need to give different drugs after surgery in the adjuvant setting and that those drugs, getting the different drugs, will improve your chance of living longer. So there are many advantages to getting chemotherapy first for women with triple negative and HER2 positive breast cancers, unless they're very, very small and don't involve the lymph nodes. For women with hormone receptor positive cancers, that is cancers that have the estrogen receptor they don't all need chemotherapy. And we would never give chemotherapy to someone preoperatively unless we knew for certain that they were going to get it postoperatively. And sometimes we can't make that determination until we examine all the tissue from surgery under the microscope. So if there's any doubt in our mind, that's never the appropriate approach. And those hormone receptor positive cancers tend not to shrink as much as the HER2 positive and the triple negative cancers with chemotherapy. So they are often best approached either with surgery first or sometimes with anti-hormonal pills or endocrine therapy first, an approach that's usually used in postmenopausal women. But that endocrine ther therapy approach takes four to six months to really see shrinkage of the cancer, and Americans, both doctors and patients, tend to be inpatient people. So that approach is not nearly as popular here as it is in other parts of the world. Yes, you make a very good point. On so many topics that we've discussed, we've become a nation that doesn't believe in delayed gratification. And uh, we want that answer or that food order or whatever it is uh, five minutes ago. So You've, you've, again, clarified things so nicely, Monica, because people hear the terms triple negative or HER positive, and it's about the proteins that you look for uh, when you get the biopsy or of the, the, actual, the actual tumor. You, uh, you want to study the tumor itself and look for uh, markers that direct you whether to start with chemotherapy prior to surgery or adjuvant after the surgery. Um, and then there are cases now, as you say, that we have immunotherapy, which is something totally different, um, asking the immune system to recognize any recurrence. So I think people need to be reminded that anything that sounds like we're testing for markers 
is different from testing the person for um, genetic mutations in their own system, like BRCA and those kinds of genetic tests. So we have about a minute left in this segment. Let's talk about that for a minute, and we can carry into the next segment. Sure. So what we've been talking about, hormone receptors and HER2, are characteristics of cancer cells. And they are genetic mutations in cancer cells. Cancer cells have many, many genetic mutations. But in general, when we use the term genetic mutation, we are talking about mutations that are present not just in cancer, but in every cell in your body that you can inherit from your mother or your father. And in breast cancer, the most important of those genetic mutations are called BRCA or BRCA1 and 2. And only about 5 to 10% of women with breast cancer have those mutations. So even though people feel like everybody has a breast cancer mutation, they don't. But they're very important because if you have one, the risk of making new breast cancers in the future is much, much higher than it is for the average woman with breast cancer. And depending how old you are when you get your first cancer and exactly what mutation you have, it can be anywhere from 25 to 40% in the first 20 years after your initial cancer. And so knowing that that risk is so high, some women decide to remove both of their breasts to minimize that risk. That's not something you have to do. It's something you can do. If you choose not to do that, we follow you more closely than we would the average woman with breast cancer, which means breast x-rays twice a year, and one of those x-rays is an MRI. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's important about those mutations is they increase not only the risk of breast cancer, but of other cancers, particularly ovarian cancer, which is a cancer that is hard to detect and challenging to treat. And so if a woman has a BRCA mutation, we recommend that once she's finished having her family, she has her ovaries removed to minimize that risk. So Genetic testing guidelines, who's recommended to get tested, who's not, have been very complicated over the years. We routinely recommend that women age 50 and under get tested. We recommend that all women with triple negative cancers up to the age of 65 get tested because triple negative cancers are particularly common in women with BRCA1. And then there's a whole list of other things related to how many relatives have breast cancer or ovarian cancer, or are there men with cancer in your family? And the net result is that most people can't remember these guidelines. And so testing is not as common as it should be. And that's particularly true among minority populations. So there is a movement in this country right now to simplify testing by changing those recommendations to say that all women with breast cancer under the age of 60 or 65 should undergo genetic testing. And so some major societies are considering modifying their guidelines to say that, which will be important in getting insurers to pay for more widespread testing. Good point. Let's take a little break to hear about Your Real Champion. And when we return, more on breast cancer surgery with Dr. Monica Morrow. And now for Your Real Champion. I call this segment Homers for Hope. For the past two baseball seasons, our entire city felt the magic of brotherly love as we cheered on the fight and fails through those final games. 
Though the Phillies didn't get to the World Series, our spirits got a major boost when we came together to root, root, root for the home team. Well, John Durso is a super baseball fan. He's played on teams all through school and at age 44 still plays hardball with friends on a regular basis. He played shortstop for Central High School and counted on his good friend Rip Rossioli to cover second base. Well, when the two friends reached age 30, Rip was lost in a tragic accident, leaving behind his young wife and a child with medical issues. John and his other friends couldn't sit by and watch Rip's widow, Gina, carry this weighty financial burden alone. So in 2009, the men came together in Rip's honor to play baseball and have a cookout. Everybody tossed a donation in a hat and gave $400 to Rip's wife, Gina. She was no stranger to tragedy and appreciated their support. She had already lost both parents when she was in high school. United by the love of their lost friend and their love of baseball, John and his friends decided to make this an annual event. The following year, John created the nonprofit called Homers for Hope. The mission? To hit home runs for families in need. With John as the co-founder and president, the organization rents baseball stadia, as in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, or Trenton, Camden, or Lakewood, New Jersey. What started as an annual home run derby now includes baseball games, softball tournaments, baseball clinics, networking events, and business luncheons. In a home run derby, players are asked to bring their own pitchers. Both the player and the pitcher are required to raise funds. And with John's unique plan, everybody has a chance to score. All events involve athletic activity, but players are incentivized to raise money. Each player has to raise a minimum of $250. Then to make a home run, you can aim for the fence at 200 feet or 325 feet. For instance, if you raise 250 and hit over the short fence, that's one point. If you hit over the long fence and bring $500, you get two points. For $1,000, you get three points. The more money you raise, the better your chance of winning. Their plan has been so successful that it's considered a best practice model for other charities, including the Darren Dalton Foundation. Players meet the family who will benefit from the money raised. One family is supported by each event. Home run derbies can raise as much as $60,000. Now, the money is not gifted in cash. Instead, the family submits their bills and John pays the bills, whether it's mortgage, electric, heating, a car payment. Now, baseball games, each player has to raise $250 and each team finds a family. The final winners get custom-made wooden bats from Woody's. A recent fall baseball team adopted the family of Brian McDermott. He was a volunteer firefighter and a college running back who was hit by a car and lost his leg. Money helped to pay his bills and buy a prosthetic. Now he's a volunteer, and as a bonus, he met his wife because she was the sister of a competitor. He pushes the other guys and gives them a blueprint to do better. Another grateful family includes an emergency room nurse who has a child with special needs. Her husband was a roofer who fell on the job and suffered brain trauma. Worse yet, it happened during the pandemic. Most volunteers are not rich people. They're contractors who don't have big incomes and raise 5 and $10 at a time. Homers also teach school kids and young people the value of helping others in need. One of the volunteers, Mickey Vasquez, used to drive from North Philly to play. He died at the age of 32 from a heart condition, leaving a wife and two children. His nickname was Souls because he loved sneakers. His wife, Millie, was so inspired by Homers for Hope that she created the Souls Foundation 
to give sneakers to needy inner city kids. Lou Silverblank from Fast Signs of the Main Line has donated all of the banners and signage. Karen Fiora of Fiora Design donates her time doing graphics. And Brian Quinn of Crown Trophy of Conshohocken donates all the trophies. To date, Homers for Hope has raised over $400,000 and helped over 40 families. There are no paid employees. It's 100% volunteers who make a significant impact on people's lives. And in my book, that's better than winning any World Series title. We salute you, John Dorso, and all the great volunteers and board members of Homers for Hope. Learn more at homersforhope.org. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. Millions of Americans are losing their medical assistance or Medicaid coverage. If this affects you, Independence Blue Cross can help. You may be eligible to enroll in a health plan for as little as $0 a month. With Independence Blue Cross, you get the largest provider network in the area, including most Keystone First doctors and hospitals. We also offer free 24-7 telemedicine, coverage for hospital stays and prescriptions. See if you qualify for $0 health insurance and enroll today. Call Independence Blue Cross at 1-844-464-2583 or visit ibx.com slash stay covered. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, now Saturday afternoons at 5, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. Welcome back to Your Radio Doctor. We're here with Dr. Monica Morrow from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center talking about breast cancer surgery and how we decide which option to go with depending on um, testing of the tumor itself genetic testing for the patient. I think, Monica, it's important to remind people, as you said, maybe 5 to 10% of women who have breast cancer have the BRCA genetic mutation. And there are two types. We can spend a whole show just on that. But I want to remind listeners, too, that family history is so vitally important because don't think if you're BRCA negative that you're off the hook, right? I mean, there are other genetic mutations like CHECK2 that you know maybe our listeners have never heard of. But if your family is polka dotted, you have to be especially mindful, right? I mean, it's not. And and the other point is that BRCA is uh, many times more likely to occur in women of Ashkenazi Jewish descent. So there's so many nuances and you're explaining them so well. So, yes, we've discovered that there are a whole list of other genes that increase breast cancer risk, but to a much lesser degree than what we see with BRCA. So Although people think genetic mutation, remove both breasts, that's not at all true anymore. It depends on exactly what genetic mutation you have when you get your cancer. So it's something you really need to discuss with an expert. And the other quick question, because we want to talk about the surgical options. When it comes to, we just, you mentioned that adjuvant chemo is chemotherapy given after surgery. Neoadjuvant means there are some patients who will benefit if they get chemotherapy prior to surgery because it helps shrink the tumor, etc., um, is the decision whether to use chemo, even if we don't find extended, more extensive disease, is that ever given in patients of a younger age, even if they don't have extended? I mean, that might be too much for today. But. It shouldn't be. Um, I mean, younger women are more likely 
to have cancers that are hormone receptor negative, so they're more likely to need chemotherapy. But if there's not a reason to give it preoperatively, age per se is not necessarily a sign of bad breast cancer. It really depends on the characteristics of the cancer. Sure. So let's talk about the surgical options because um, I know when I was a student and in training, radical mastectomy meant a very large operation taking a lot of tissue and muscle that doesn't happen now. The, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if a woman is advised to have a mastectomy, it's called a modified radical mastectomy or maybe even lesser or versus a lumpectomy and radiation. Let's talk about how you make those decisions. Okay. So a modified radical mastectomy means to remove the breast and the lymph glands under the arm. Um, Today, what we do is what we call a total mastectomy, which means we remove the breast and we do that sentinel node biopsy, and we don't always remove all the lymph nodes under the arm. But the important thing is there are choices, not all women with breast cancer, and in fact, the majority of women with breast cancer don't need to have their entire breast removed. They can have what we call breast conserving surgery, which means to do a lumpectomy, to take out the cancer with a rim of normal tissue around it. And if you have that done, you will need to get radiation treatments to the breast after surgery, which classically are given five days a week, Monday through Friday, for about three and a half weeks, sometimes for longer, sometimes for shorter. But the point is that if you have a lumpectomy, and you're under the age of 65, radiation is going to be a part of your treatment. Now, the most important thing to know about lumpectomy and radiation and mastectomy is that the chance of surviving breast cancer is exactly the same between those two operations. Many people, starting with many doctors many years ago, but patients as well, have the idea in their head that a bigger surgery must be a better surgery, must cure more breast cancer. That is just simply not true. We have studied that over and over and over again for the past 35 years, and we know very clearly that survival is the same. So then the other issue about that is, well, what about the risk of cancer coming back in the area of the surgery itself, which is what we call local recurrence? And it is a very common belief, particularly on the internet, that if your breast is gone, you can't have a local recurrence because you've had a mastectomy. And if your breast is there, you can. And that makes mastectomy a safer operation. That, unfortunately, is also completely untrue. What makes cancer cancer is it has the ability to come back, and that includes in the scar tissue of a mastectomy. So in today's world, it turns out that the risk of cancer recurring in the scar tissue of a mastectomy and after lumpectomy and radiation is exactly the same. And for most common hormone receptor positive breast cancers, it's only about 5% at 20 years. So it's a small number. So lumpectomy and radiation is a much smaller surgery than a mastectomy, particularly a mastectomy with a reconstruction. It has fewer complications and it has fewer side effects. But most importantly, what we know is that quality of life is better after yes. breast conserving surgery. You know, it used to be that doctors decided how good they thought your breast looked after surgery and assessed how important side effects were. But now we have things called patient reported outcomes where we ask patients themselves what is important to them, 
how do they feel, how is their quality of life. And that's been done in many, many women comparing those who had lumpectomy and radiation and mastectomy. And those studies pretty uniformly show that quality of life is better after breast conserving surgery. Now, unfortunately, everybody can't have breast conserving surgery. In order to do it, the cancer has to be confined to a small enough area that it can be removed with a rim of normal tissue and still leave you with a breast that looks good. If it's a big cancer that's confined to one area, that's where preoperative chemotherapy to shrink it comes in. But sometimes microscopic cancer or precancerous changes are scattered all over the breast and those women need to have a mastectomy. A small group of women can't get radiation. Women who have um, the diseases scleroderma and lupus that are active can't safely receive radiation, and so they need to get a mastectomy. We don't radiate women when they're pregnant. There's no way you can shield the fetus from the kind of radiation that we give to treat cancer. But in some cases, for women later in pregnancy, they're going to be getting drug therapy first anyway, and they can have their radiation after delivery. So that's something that you have to talk to your physician about. We also used to say that if you had had radiation to the breast once, you couldn't get it over again. But Newer studies have shown that it may be possible to re-irradiate a portion of the breast. Whether or not that's a good approach depends on how long ago the prior radiation was, what the breast looks like. Again, that's something to talk to a radiation oncologist about to see whether or not re-irradiation is feasible. So the point is there are lots of options. Um, When you see someone in consultation about the treatment of your breast cancer, if you're not offered your options and it's not explained to you, for example, why you shouldn't have a lumpectomy, why that's medically inappropriate, then you need to get a second opinion to find Mm -hmm. out. And then there's breast reconstruction. So not all women choose to have breast reconstruction, but many women want it. And for the vast majority of those women, reconstruction can and should be started as part of the same operation as the mastectomy, because it allows us to save the normal skin of your breast as an envelope to build the reconstruction into, which makes the plastic surgeon's job easier and makes the scars smaller. Having a reconstruction doesn't in any way increase the risk of cancer coming back. It doesn't hide cancer if it comes back in the area of the surgery, because when that happens, it happens right up in the skin and the scar tissue, and you can still feel it. So there are many different ways to do reconstruction. Which one is best for you depends on your breast size, your body shape, how much surgery you're willing to go through, and your overall health. And that's something that can really best be determined by consulting with a plastic surgeon who has experience in all types of breast reconstruction. But again, if reconstruction isn't offered to you, you should ask why not. Mm -hmm. So you bring up so many good points, Monica, because I think... um, I'm sure that there are people who think, and as you say, sometimes doctors are not well-informed, that 
if you have reconstruction and you have implants, will it hide a recurrence that's hiding underneath? And you're saying, hey, it's most likely to show up in the scar. We have had the surgery. Um, I meant to ask too about um, uh, are there, there are some surgeons who are able to um, salvage the nipple, the person's original nipple when they do reconstruction. Is that advisable? What do you have to say about that? So nipple sparing mastectomy is a newer kind of mastectomy that has become very popular. Um, there's a couple things to know about that. The reason we can save the skin of your breast safely is because it's separated from your breast tissue by a layer of fat. And that layer of fat is what keeps the skin alive. Underneath your nipple, there is no fat. The ducts, the tubes that bring the milk to the nipple and the place where breast cancer forms, go right up into the nipple. So anytime we do a nipple sparing mastectomy, we knowingly leave behind breast tissue to give mm -hmm. the nipple a blood supply. Mm -hmm. If you have a small cancer that's far away from the nipple, that's a pretty safe thing to do. But if you have cancer that's right around the nipple, it's not a safe thing to do. Yeah. And the other thing is nipple sparing mastectomy because the incisions we use are different and they have to stay far away from the nipple, is a technically more challenging operation to do. And so if you're going to have that operation, you need to make sure it's done by somebody who does a lot of that kind of surgery. Mm -hmm. Let's take a little break and we'll be back for our wrap up with Dr. Monica Barrow. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. I'm always striving to live my healthiest life, so I need a health plan that has my back. With Independence Blue Cross, I get access to the largest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free virtual doctor visits 24-7. Plus, with premiums as low as $0 per month, I can stay on top of my health and keep my budget in check. Independence has given me coverage I can count on, and they'll do the same for you. Learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com. When Recovery Centers of America at Devon opened its campuses on the main line and in South Jersey, they offered a new approach, local addiction treatment led by an expert caring team of professionals. RCA has since helped thousands and leads the way in innovative programs and exceptional inpatient and outpatient care, all in a beautiful setting that allows for healing and recovery. RCA answers the phone and admits patients 24-7, 365, including the holidays. All admitted patients and staff are routinely tested for COVID-19. Call now at 1-888-RECOVERY. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. Welcome back to our final segment of Your Radio Doctor, which we call Your Weekly Prescription. We have learned so much valuable information from our guest, Dr. Monica Morrow, uh, professor of surgery and the chair of breast surgery at um, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Monica, we've just talked about the different options that are available, and I have just a couple questions that uh, I wanted to ask. At what point or in what uh, scenario would you recommend that a patient have the bilateral uh, or prophylactic removal of the other breast? They have cancer on one side. Is it determined by the genetics of the tumor or the person's family history? How, in what cases would you ask a person to strongly consider having the breast that doesn't appear to have cancer also removed? Well, that's a great question because it's a real issue in today's world. And in 
women who have a risk high enough that we would suggest to them that they consider that are most certainly women with BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations. And women who have very strong family histories, by which I mean multiple relatives on the same side of the family, particularly if they've had breast cancer at young ages, but who haven't been shown to have a gene mutation. There clearly are some genes out there that we haven't found yet. And so that would be another circumstance to consider that. But for the average woman with breast cancer, we know that removing your normal breast does nothing to make you live longer because breast cancer doesn't spread from breast to breast. Anything that happens on the other side is a whole brand new cancer. And the vast majority of women with one breast cancer never make a second breast cancer. Um, so removing your other breast doesn't do you any good in that way. It's twice the amount of surgery and the complications are doubled because it's in essence a whole second separate operation. So it's not surprising that when diagnosed with breast cancer, many women just say, I don't want to deal with this ever again, cut everything off so I don't have to think mm -hmm. about it. And the problem is, of course, that for most women, their main breast cancer risk is the risk of the cancer they already have coming back. And that's not changed by removing their other breast. So it's something we recommend highly selectively. Mm -hmm. So a couple of things come to mind. I wonder if a person has, is, is young um, or if there's such a, a, a strong family history and we do genetic testing. I wonder how often, I'm sure databases like at Memorial, you keep um, a sample of the person's blood so that if in the future you can test their blood and see if there is, now we've uh, isolated a different mutation that we could go back and test for you know, other people in the family tree now that we see next generation being so affected. Well, certainly what is done in genetic testing is there are things called variants of uncertain significance, or VUS, mm -hmm. which are mutations that are not known to increase the risk of breast cancer at the time that the test comes out. But the companies keep track of those. And over time, if they find, in fact, that there is an increased risk of cancer development, then your doctor is notified about that and you're notified about that. So this is a field that's changing and we're trying to keep on top of it. But right now, um, it's mostly fear that drives contralateral prophylactic mastectomy in women who are not at increased risk of breast cancer development. And as you said, we don't all live close to Memorial Sloan Kettering or even Fox Chase Cancer Center here in Philadelphia, but there are NCI, National Cancer Institute, designated centers across the country. So I know when I meet a patient and I do colonoscopy or upper end and I find a stomach cancer or new colon cancer, I always say, listen, we've known each other for an hour. You came to me for this procedure. If you feel better, get a second opinion. Or as you said earlier, if you're getting advice that seems pretty cut and dry, and even if it's not cut and dry, it's not a bad idea to go to an NCI designated cancer center, yes? Yes, I think that's a great piece of advice. Um, the National Cancer Institute designates certain places that meet certain qualifications for research and cancer care. And there you can be assured that you are receiving the best advice that we know. 
And there's nothing wrong with getting a second opinion. Your doctor is not offended by getting a second opinion. Nobody should be. It's just a way to make sure you're doing the best thing for yourself. Absolutely. And clinical trials, same thing. We had Dr. Cliff Huddis on a few weeks ago, our former colleague at Memorial, now CEO of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, who says, ask your doctor if there's a clinical trial available. Again, you don't have to live a block away from Memorial or a research center. With telehealth, you can be involved in a clinical trial, uh, meaning uh, be part of a research study that looks at different facets that, that could really help you and help move the uh, uh, findings about particular cancers. Monica, the two big messages you'd like to share about lumpectomy versus mastectomy and recurrence and survival. So I think the key about that is we know clearly on the basis of the highest level scientific evidence that there is no difference in the chance of surviving breast cancer, whether you have a lumpectomy and radiation or whether you have a mastectomy. With mm -hmm. either operation, there is a risk that cancer can come back, and that risk is not different. And last but not least, having a bigger surgery doesn't mean you won't need drug therapy afterwards. The drug therapy you get, chemotherapy, hormone therapy, is based on the characteristics of the cancer, not which operation you choose to have. We have about a minute left. When a person has um, surgery uh, and reconstruction, how often do people get mammograms and do you use a different study like an MRI if they've had reconstruction? So the average woman with breast cancer needs a mammogram once a year. That's all. Not more frequently. Gene carriers more frequently. Otherwise, mm -hmm. no. We don't take mammograms or x-rays of the reconstructed breast as a routine. There's no reason to do that. You diagnose what's going on there by physical exam. If you feel something that feels funny, then you get an ultrasound of what you feel. So there's no reason. MRI of breast implants is done to look for implant leakage, not as a cancer test. Excellent. You've cleared up so many important questions. Monica Morrow, you are a superstar. And I will say of, of the many people I've interviewed, you have brought so much hope and you've help so many thousands of people. I think, I don't know whether it would hurt your parents' feelings if we change your name to tomorrow. The sun will come up tomorrow. <laughs> I, could see, I could see you singing on Broadway. You could be the next Annie. You've obviously <laughs> never heard me sing because I have a hideous voice. <laughs> I'm pretty good in the shower. That's the extent of it. Well, Monica, thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you for joining us today on Your Radio Doctor. Next week, we'll be back at our regular time on Saturday at 5 p.m. Listen to this show again and all of our shows on odyssey.com. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y. A special thank you to our exclusive sponsor, Independence Blue Cross, and for support from Recovery Centers of America. If you would like to partner in the show or advertise with us, send an email to info at yourradiodoctor.net. Tell us about a champion in your world. Email us, info at yourradiodoctor.net. Be inspired by these good people, because remember, you can't be happy if you're not grateful, and you can't be grateful unless you're humble. Please pray for peace in our world, our country, our cities, our families, and in our own hearts. This is your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, wishing you a happy, healthy, and safe week with the ones you love, and always here to remind you that your health is your wealth. 
Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. To contact Dr. Marianne and to listen to today's show as well as past shows, visit yourradiodoctor.com. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program has been pre-recorded.